Well, I know it's been uh, a little while since I preached the first message in this series. I think it's been about seven months. And uh, so I might take just a couple of minutes just to remind us what we talked about then. I know you all remember. So I hope that this doesn't bore you when we go over it quickly again tonight. But last time, we learned that 1 Peter was written around the time that Rome was burned, around the time that Nero was Caesar. And at that time, the Christians were blamed for that that burning of Rome. So this was a very difficult time of testing for Christians who are forced to flee for their lives in the face of very intense persecution that is referred to as the dispersion, or in Greek, diaspora. Peter said the dispersion, or diaspora, was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And we noted last time that God's foreknowledge is not simply knowledge before the fact, but includes a predetermination of what will be. God not only fully knows what will take place, he has a definite plan. So the diaspora was not the result of random events in history that God knew would take place. He was in complete control of every part of it as part of his definite predetermined plan. Now the word elect from from 1 Peter 1.1 means chosen or picked out. So the elect exiles were a chosen group selected according to the foreknowledge of God. And they were not simply those who God knew would one day place their trust in Christ. They were chosen according to God's predetermined plan. Why were they chosen? Well, if we compare what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, and what Paul said in in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 that we looked at last time, we noted that the elect were chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, and for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, how is it possible that God's elect would be holy and blameless? Well, first, in 1 Peter 1-2, Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God in in the sanctification of the Spirit, So sanctification means holiness. So to sanctify means to make holy. So when we come to Christ, we become a new creation. Through the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we are renewed. And of course, we're all very familiar with the verse 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And secondly, Peter says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. The only other place Peter mentions the blood of Christ is in 1 Peter 1.19. And starting from verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Our salvation is only possible through the blood of Christ that was sprinkled on our behalf that we might have life. In summary then, God chose the elect before the foundation of the world. At a time, um, they were marked out for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to God's definite plan that they might be made holy 
and blameless before him, living in obedience to Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our text for today with, uh, that uh, Richard just read. And you know, as people around us go through difficult times, and we all have people around us going through difficult times, sometimes it's us going through those difficult times. But we often um, hear them say things, unusual things, or sorry, it's not unusual to hear them say certain things about hope. They'll say things like, we're not giving up hope, or don't lose hope, or we're very hopeful. And the question is, what is the object of their hope? What is it that they're placing their hope in? If we were to drill down many times, we'd find people placing their hope in doctors, financial markets, jobs, relationships, the weather, even the lottery. Sometimes hope is placed in hope. They hope beyond all hope, so to speak. People don't know where to turn, so they just hope. And just as when talking about faith, it's important to understand what is the object of our faith. When we talk about hope, it's important to understand what is the object of our hope. Peter combines the two together in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. And speaking of Christ, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. The object of our faith is God, who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. Now we're going to see in a moment that Peter calls this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I've entitled today's message, Hopeful Living. And I've divided our text into four points. Hope that is secure. Hope that is tested. Hope that is unseen. And hope that is fulfilled. Hope that is secure, tested, unseen, and fulfilled. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter, that's a good place to have them. And uh, just follow along as I read verses 3 to 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says, Blessed or worthy of praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word used for blessed here is only appears eight times in the New Testament, and this always refers to God the Father or the Son. It's only God who is worthy of our praise and full, our full commitment to him. Next, Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, a simple definition of mercy is not getting what we deserve. Not getting what we deserve. That is, one with the power and authority to dole out judgment does not give us the punishment Deserved. 
And notice verse 3 says, great mercy. The word is emphasizing the quantity of mercy. We could say according to God's multitudinous or boundless mercy. That's a very great quantity of mercy. And what is it that God did to provide this multitudinous quantity of mercy? Peter says, he caused us to be born again. So why does that involve so much mercy? Well, this gets to the very core of the gospel. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Now, Paul already said back in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now in Romans 6.23, he tells us that the wages or payment for sin that we're all guilty of is death. Now, death means more than just physical death. It also means spiritual death or separation from the life or salvation of God forever. Speaking of this lost state, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is describing a totally hopeless state without God in this world, running headlong to spiritual death, separated from the life and salvation of God forever. And you may be thinking, well, that's not so bad. All I have to do is turn to Christ, and that will all be taken care of. Well, Paul quashes that idea in Romans 3, 9, and 10. He says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It's written, none is righteous. No, not one. Then he goes on in verses 11 and 12. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And death, dead here means we're not able to respond to impulses or perform functions. We all know what it means to be dead. This is talking about spiritual death. It further means to be unresponsive to life-giving influences or opportunities, inoperative to the things of God. All of this means that on our own, we would never turn to God and away from our sin. This is our absolutely hopeless state. We were dead in sin, unable to respond to life-giving influence is and destined to spiritual death, separated from the life or salvation of God forever, and there was absolutely nothing in and of ourselves that we could do about it. This is where God's multitudinous or boundless mercy is so clearly demonstrated. When we were dead in our sin and could do absolutely nothing about it, Ephesians 2, 4-7 says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Where mercy is not getting what we deserve, 
Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Back in 1 Peter 1.3, Peter said, God has caused us to be born again, except for God exercising his boundless mercy and grace, we would be hopelessly lost and eternally separated from God. But verse 3 says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So now we've gone from absolute hopelessness to a living hope. Is that not boundless mercy? What is this living hope based on? Well, back in 1 Peter 1.3, it says, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our living hope is based on the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, in order for Christ to be raised from the dead, first he had to die. Why did he die? Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ died once for sins. Now, unlike the continual reoccurring sacrifices for sin that were required in the Old Testament, Christ died once for sins. His death was totally sufficient to pay for our sin. John says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we, loved God, we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means to appease or satisfy. Christ's death fully pleased God and satisfied his wrath on our behalf. If we were giving all of eternity to pay for our sin by our own death, it would not be sufficient to appease God or propitiate God's wrath. If this is true, why could Christ die once and fully pay the price for our sin? Well, Peter answers that question in 1 Peter 2.22. He says, Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ could fully pay for our sin because he had no sin of his own. This is the reason why why this this is sorry then why why doesn't first peter say that we are born again to a living hope through the death of jesus christ why instead does it say through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead the fact that jesus christ was raised from the dead demonstrates beyond question that our sin has been fully and completely paid for first peter 3:18 says that he might bring us to God. So before we were without hope, eternally separated from God, now as substantiated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are brought to God. This is our living hope. We are not only born again to a living hope, but also to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is this inheritance? Matthew 25, 34 says, It's the kingdom of God prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Psalm 73, 25 and Revelation 21, 3 say that God himself is our inheritance. Romans 8, 17 says that we are fellow heirs with Christ. And Hebrews 1, 2 says that, 
that Christ is the heir of all things. So we can deduce from this that along with Christ, we have become the heir of all things. Peter said this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The Amplified Version of the Bible says it is beyond reach of change and decay, imperishable, unsettling, the unfading, and unfading reserved in heaven for you. Our inheritance could not be more secure. It will never change or deteriorate, lose its luster, or become less vivid. It is kept or reserved in heaven for us. What place could be more secure than heaven? Now, it's clear that our inheritance is secure. But what about those who have been born again? In other words, what about our salvation? Is that secure? Well, this brings us to 1 Peter 1.5. Peter says, who, that is those who have been born again, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word power, dunamis, used here means might, power, or marvelous works. It's where we get our word dynamite. The idea here is miraculous power. Now, Psalm 147 describes God as having abundant power. Romans 1.20 says eternal power. Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 2.12 say mighty power. 2 Peter 1.3 says divine power. Revelation 11.17 says great power. What is God doing with this abundant, eternal, mighty, divine, and great power? Peter says that by it, we are being guarded. The idea of guarded is to protect, keep, and preserve. What is it that God is guarding with his power? Well, verse 5 continues. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the la- in the last time. God, with his abundant, eternal, mighty, divine, and great power, is guarding our salvation. What could be more secure than that? But wait a minute. Notice the verse 5 says, through faith. Does this mean if I don't have enough faith, I can lose my salvation? In other words, is God not able to guard my salvation if my faith is insufficient? Is my security and my salvation therefore depending on me rather than on God? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our faith in the first place, is a gift of God. Our salvation is all of God and none of us so that we have nothing to boast about. We believe because God gave us faith to believe. Now, R.C. Sproul has a very helpful comment to say about this. He says, Christians persevere not because they are so diligent in making use of the mercies of God, The only reason we can give why any of us continue on in the faith is because we have been preserved. My confidence in my preservation is not in my ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with his grace 
and by the power of his intercession, we are going, he is going to bring us safely home. Now, when we get to 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7 in a couple of minutes, we'll look briefly at, at the endurance of our faith again in the context of our trials. And we'll see that God uses trials in this life that we might grow in steadfastness and endurance. So our salvation in Christ is absolutely secure. This is our living hope. How do I know? Or how do we know? Well, because it's all of God. It comes from God's multitudinous or boundless mercy. It's initiated by God. It's he who caused us to be born again. Its foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, proving God's wrath was fully appeased and satisfied by his death. It is our inheritance, which is God himself and all that is Christ, and it will never change, deteriorate, lose its luster, or become less vivid and is kept or preserved in heaven for us. It is guarded by God's abundant, eternal, mighty, divine, and great power. Now, we may not be able to see all of this while we're in this life. Nonetheless, Paul says in Romans 8, 24, for in this, basically all that we've said, for in this we are saved. Or sorry, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But one day our hope will be realized and we will see. How do I know this? Well, 1 Peter 1.5 concludes by telling us that this is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is when Christ returns for his own. This is a living hope that is secure. Now, Peter begins verse 6 with, In this you rejoice. Now, we can certainly rejoice that our hope in Christ is secure, but this does not mean that our lives will not include trials. As we move on to verses 6 and 7, we'll see hope that is tested. Listen as I read. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you've walked with Christ for any time, you know that trials are very much a part of the Christian life. In fact, Peter exhorts us to not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you uh, as though something strange were happening to you in 1 Peter 4.12. Trials are not something that should surprise us at all. When Peter says if necessary, this is a gentle way of saying to his suffering audience that trials are necessary, as, we, as is experienced by all of us all the time, every day in our lives. What is the this in verse 6 that we're to rejoice in? Is Peter suggesting that we should be rejoicing in our trials? No, the this refers back to verses 3 to 5 that we just went through. We are to rejoice that our salvation in Christ is absolutely secure and that this is our living hope. 
Now, going through trials or grievous trials is not something we're expected to rejoice in. However, we are told by James to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Even in times of trial, we do not have to lose our hope in Christ. Our joy is not based on the circumstances around us, but in the security that we have in Christ. Our living hope in our secure salvation in Christ is an endless source of joy, no matter what's going on around us. Now, remember that Peter is writing to those who are under severe persecution and suffering because of their faith in Christ. This is why he first had to reassure them that no matter what, their salvation was secure in Christ. The reality, though, as they very well knew, is that they were going to experience grievous trials. This is just as true for us today as it was for Peter's readers back then. We're going to experience grievous trials in the Christian life. Don't be surprised by it. The word trial here, pyrasmos, depending on the context, means testing, trial, or temptation. Now, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the subtle differences are between the three. If you Google trial versus testing versus temptation, you'll find many articles that try to explain those differences. But I'm not going to take time to go through those. Because in the context here, there's one main thought. It all boils down to that one thought. And I like the way that Strong's Exhaustive Concordance expresses that. It defines pyrasmos as putting to proof. The idea is adversity, affliction, trouble, that is trial sent by God and serving to test or prove one's faith, holiness, character. Now, why do we have to go through these grievous trials? Verse 7 says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of our trials is to test the genuineness of our faith. Now, James makes the same connection in James 1, 2-3 that we referred to a moment ago. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, pyrasmos, of different kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Our trials serve to test our faith. The phrase tested, genuineness, used in in 1 Peter 1.7 is the same Greek word translated testing in James 1.3 and is only used in these two places in the New Testament. The implication here is that trials test the trustworthiness of our faith. Peter tells us that the tested genuineness of our faith is more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire in 1 Peter 1.7. Now, gold is subjected to fire to burn off the dross or impurities and to leave only pure gold. So in a sense, our trials are being compared to the fire used to purify gold, or to put it another way, to expose the pure gold. Now, being subjected to fire is very fearful, not to mention a painful experience. The purpose, though, is to purify, or in the context of what Peter is saying, it is to expose the genuineness or trustworthiness of our faith. 
When we've gone through the trial, 1 Peter 4.12 says fiery trial, and our faith is found to be genuine and trustworthy, the result is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in case you missed it, what verse 7 is saying is that the praise and glory and honor will be directed toward the believer. So then our trials are intended to refine our faith Much like fire refines gold, James says, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Other words that could be substituted for steadfastness are consistency or endurance. This is defining a person who stands fast in Christ, even when faced with the greatest trials and sufferings. Now, I know that there are times that our trials seem to never end. Sometimes they just seem to go on and on and on. But Peter describes them as going on for a little while. Back in 1 Peter 1.6, in the light of eternity awaiting us, those whose faith is genuine, the trials of this life are very short in duration. This is why Paul, who suffered more than most of us ever will, could say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparisons. Our trials are momentary and will only last a little while when compared to eternity. Now I have to go back to 1 Peter 1.5 for just a moment. It said, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A few minutes ago, we said that God, with his abundant, eternal, mighty, divine, and great power, is guarding our salvation. Remember, we pointed out that verse 5 says, through faith, our salvation is secure in Christ because we are guarded or kept by God through faith. Again, I want to ask the same question. What if our faith doesn't endure? then is it possible for us to lose our salvation? Well, no, because not only is our faith a gift of God, as we said from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, our faith is being refined through our trials to produce steadfastness, consistency, and endurance. This is why James can exhort us to count it all joy when you meet various trials. Don't be discouraged by the trials of this life. They're making you stronger. They're making you steadfast so you'll endure. They're proving the genuineness and the trustworthiness of your faith. A moment ago, we read 2 Corinthians 4.17, which said, For the slight momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, I'd like to read that again, but this time I want to add verse 18. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternity, are eternal. As we go through trials, Paul is exhorting us not to, to look to the things that are seen, like the trials themselves, for they are transient, that is brief or temporary. 
Rather, Paul is saying, look to the things that are unseen, for they are eternal. Well, what are the things that are unseen that Paul is referring to? This brings us to 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what I call hope that is unseen. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples, but Thomas was not there with them at that, on that occasion. And John tells us the rest of the story in John 20, 24 to 29. He says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. In 1 Peter 1.8, Peter boldly asserts, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. How can Peter know this? How did he know his readers were not like Thomas who insisted on seeing before they would believe? He knows because the genuineness of their faith has been tested by fire and found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith is absolutely necessary for salvation. We saw this in verse 5. From Ephesians 2.8, we learn that our faith is a gift of God. Then in 1 Peter 1.7 and James 1, 2, and 3, we saw the purpose of our trials was to produce steadfastness, consistency, and endurance. Therefore, verse 8 follows perfectly and is a very logical statement. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Now, none of us has seen Jesus in a physical, literal sense. But that will not always be the case. In 1 John 3, 2 and 3, John tells us, Beloved, we are, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the hope that is unseen. Earlier we quoted Romans 8.24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? And in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul said, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And back in 1 Peter 1, 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Isn't this what we've been saying all along? Our trials have tested the genuineness of our faith and produced in us steadfastness, consistency, and endurance so that we believe in Christ, resulting in joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is why we can have hope even in the midst of our trials. This is why the title of this message is Hopeful Living. What is the outcome? Peter says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I could have just as easily called this message the security of our salvation. Well, this brings us to our last point. Hope that is fulfilled. Verses 10 to 12. Follow along as I read, please. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, time is not going to allow us to unpack these verses, so I'm only going to make a couple of very brief comments, and then we'll be done. The prophets who prophesied the coming of Christ under the inspiration of the Spirit did not fully understand the message that they were recording for us in the Old Testament. They only saw snippets and were not able to put it all together. There is intensity to that phrase, inquired carefully. This was not a casual inquiry. It was a diligent effort. They diligently investigated to understand the facts of the message. But in spite of their diligent efforts, they were only able to determine that the message was not for them to fully understand, but for those who would follow and have the good news preached to them. However, all that the prophets foretold was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, these are truths that even angels long to look into. It would appear from this that the gospel is a curiosity even to angels so that they long to carefully look into it. Now, in my mind, the magnitude of God's grace to us is absolutely beyond understanding. That he would reveal to us the gospel of Jesus Christ when even the prophets of old and angels do not fully understand it. Who are we that he should reveal this great truth, the truth of the gospel to us and not to angels? Well, this is beyond me. David expressed a similar thought in Psalm 8. He said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Yet 
You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, we may not be able to understand why God chose to be mindful of us and to make us a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowning us with glory and honor. But we can rejoice in the fact that he did, in his grace and multitudinous and boundless mercy. If you're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, then you have a hope that is secure, tested, unseen, and fulfilled. This is a living hope. The security of our salvation has little to do with us and everything to do with God's abundant, eternal, mighty, divine, and great power. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. We know are sure to come so the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is hopeful living. 1 Peter 1.13 that we're going to look at next time says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you've not placed your faith in Christ, you have no hope. According to Ephesians 2.12, you are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Though you have not seen him, that is Christ, love him. Though you do not now see him, believe in him. The outcome of your faith will be the salvation of your souls. Then instead of having no hope and being without God in the world, you will be able to rejoice in your secure salvation, having a living hope that is secure, tested, unseen, and fulfilled. As I conclude tonight, I want to leave you with the words of Paul in Romans 5, 1 to 5. Listen carefully as I read this. He says, therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we, all, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Please join me in prayer. Lord, what an amazing message of hope you've given us in the word of God. Lord, we thank you that we can have this hope that is secure, 
tested, unseen, and fulfilled. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of anything related to us. Not because of any work. Not because of any strength or effort on our part. But because of what you have done. Sending your son to die and to be raised from the dead. To pay fully and completely for our sin. Thank you, any of us that are here tonight that know Christ, are standing here tonight not because of us, but it's because of you keeping us in our faith, you who causes us to persevere. And Father, none of us enjoy trials. None of us want to go through those hard times in our lives If we could have it our way, Lord, we would choose only bliss. And yet, Lord, in ways that are beyond our understanding, you allow us to go through those trials so that we will stand fast, so that the genuineness of our faith will be known, so that we will endure and persevere and be steadfast in our walk with you. Lord, though we are not happy about trials, though we do not rejoice in our trials. We do rejoice in what it is that you do in our lives through those trials. And therefore, Lord, we count it all joy when we go through those various trials because we know that you're using them in a wonderful way to help us to grow in steadfastness, to walk with you and to be more like Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that. And thank you, Lord, that in the midst of those challenging and difficult times, we can have that living hope. Not hope based on hope, not hope based on worldly things like finances or the lottery or those things, but hope based on God, hope based on what you've done in raising Christ from the dead, that sure living hope, and we thank you for that. Lord, may we go from this place Rejoicing, May we go from this place, even in our trials, rejoicing in that sure hope that we, can, that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.